Welcome to City Harvest Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by the preaching of the Word by Pastor Owen McManus. Have you ever prayed and asked God to do something epic in your life? You know, God do something amazing. God do something extraordinary. God do something miraculous. And, and then your life falls apart. You face the biggest crisis of your life. And it seems almost as if God ignored your prayer. You're like, God, I was asking for you to do something awesome in my life, and you send me into a spiral. You turn my world upside down. You ruin everything. Have you ever noticed that we always want God to do something great, but we don't want to have to face a great challenge? See, if you ever ask God to do something great in your life or great with your life, what you're actually praying is God bring a great challenge to my life. See, we, we all want to kill giants as long as they're very, very small and not bigger than us. I, I, I stumbled across this, this moment in the scriptures that really caught me off guard. It was the story of a king and a prophet. And the king was worried because he knew the prophet and he knew that the prophet knew God. But he did not know God. And the prophet was about to die. And that meant his only contact to God was about to end. And the prophet's name was Elisha. And so he calls Elisha because an army is coming to go to war against him. And he says to Elisha, you need to do something because we're facing this impending threat. And, and so Elisha tells the king to grab an arrow and a bow. And there's moment there's a bow and an arrow, I'm in. So he says, take the bow and the arrow and, and shoot the arrow through the window. And in fact, it tells us that Elijah didn't really trust the king to do it with all the strength that he had. So Elijah put his hands on the king's hands and he pulled the arrow back with the king and, and, and made that, that, that bow pull to its fullest pressure. Then it shot through the window. And, and then Elijah said to him, this is how God's going to give you a complete victory. I mean, imagine if you woke up and God said to you, no matter what you face today, I'm going to give you a complete victory. No, no matter what comes your way, I'm going to give you a complete victory. No matter how your world is turned upside down, I'm going to give you a complete victory. How would it change your posture to life if you knew every day that God guaranteed you a complete victory? It would change everything, wouldn't it? It, 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 it would change your, your, your confidence. It would change the level of courage in your life. It would, it would probably change the amount of risk you were willing to take. If you knew, if the first thing God said is, I'm going to give you a complete victory. But what would happen if at the end of the day, after God told you, I'm going to give you a complete victory, at the end of the day, he says, nah, you're only going to get a partial victory. You'd have to figure out somewhere along the way what happened between complete victory to just partial victory. Because I think most of us know that God wants to give us a complete victory, but most of us are actually living in partial victory. And we can't figure out where along the way we're losing this complete victory. See, Elijah tells him to shoot the arrow through the window when he does, and then he tells him something unusual. He says, take the arrow in your hand and strike it. 
And so the king begins to strike the arrow, and it tells us that he strikes the arrow three times, which I think is a pretty good number. I mean, there are certain numbers that are biblical, right? Like three, seven, 12, 40. And so if he struck the arrow three times, it seems like a pretty biblical number, or then you have to go to seven times. He never tells the king how many times to strike the arrow. He just says strike the arrow, and he does once, twice, three times, and then he stops. And then something unusual happens in the story. It says, Elisha says, take the arrow, and the king took them, and Elisha said, strike the ground, and he struck the, the ground three times and stopped. And then in verse 19 of 2 Kings 13, it says this. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will only defeat it three times. And when I was reading this, I thought, wait a minute, this is so confusing. It even feels wrong. Because he didn't tell the king how many times to strike. I, I, I mean, how was the king supposed to know he should strike more than three times? If he had given me the arrow, I don't know how many times I would have struck Mary. I would have just struck it one time. Or two or three. But have you ever felt like you did everything you're supposed to do and you just stopped? And then later you found out it wasn't enough? See, why would the prophet become angry with the king and say, why did you stop striking the arrow? See, I'm on the king's side. I go, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me to keep striking? Why didn't you say, strike the arrow and don't stop striking? Or strike the arrow five or six times because it says, if you struck it five or six times, then you would have had a complete victory. I would have said, well, if you told me to strike it five or six times, I would have struck it five or six times. I would have gone to nine or ten. I mean, I can do that, but why didn't you tell me? Have you ever felt like God just isn't telling you what you need to do? And then he's blaming you for what you did not do? And then it occurred to me. You ever notice that a lot of times we, we act like we need to hear from God before we do something? Like, I, I had a friend one time, and he was so talented and so gifted, and he was a great communicator, great preacher. Had, had incredible leadership gifts, and we were, we were in school together getting our master's degree, and I was a new Christian, and he was a, a person who had been a follower of Christ throughout his life, and we were driving across Texas, and I said, what are you going to do with your life? He goes, I don't know. I said, I know you don't know because you're not doing anything. And I say, why don't you just do something? And he goes, I can't just do something. I said, why? Doing something is better than doing nothing. He goes, I have too much respect for the sovereignty of God to just do something. And I said, you're like a gnat hitting the windshield. You cannot dent the sovereignty of God. You're telling me you have so much respect for God's sovereignty that you will not do anything because you're worried if you do something, you'll mess up God's plan for the universe. See, my, my approach was the opposite. If I don't know what to do, I'm just going to do something. See, what I find is that most of us, we act like we need permission from God to start something, but we never ask for permission when we quit. See, I wonder how many of us, God wants to give us a complete victory, but we keep blaming God for giving us a partial victory, and it's because we think we failed, but actually we quit. 
See, I think for so many of us here, we think that we're failures. We think that we've failed God. We think we've failed our purpose. We think we've become failures in our lives. And the truth is, God never told you to stop. He gave you an arrow. He put it in your hands. He said, strike. And you did it once or twice or three times and you didn't get the result you wanted. You didn't see the outcome you wanted. It was harder than you thought it was supposed to be. It didn't happen as fast as you believed it would happen, so you just quit. I wonder how many dreams are still inside of you waiting to become your life, but you keep waiting for God to do what he's waiting for you to do. So I wrote this book called The Last Arrow because I, I wondered how many of us are going to die with our quivers full of arrows we were supposed to shoot. How many of us are going to die with an arrow in our hand that we just gave up and didn't strike enough times before God would come through? Why do we quit and think we failed? And I started realizing that there's certain self-defeating frameworks that keep us from living the life God created us to live. And, and, and one of them has to do with fear. See, well, what we don't realize is that, that our freedom is on the other side of our fear. And, and that whatever we fear establishes the boundaries of our freedom. So there's some of you here right now, and you believe that God wants you to be free. And you know all the promises in the scriptures about freedom. And you know that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And, and you know that you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know all the things about freedom, but you're not free. And you don't know what's actually holding you captive because it's invisible. And I want you to realize that every prison that will hold you is a prison created from the inside out. And what you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. So if you're afraid of heights, you stay low. If you're afraid of people, you stay alone. If you're afraid of the future, you live in the past. If you're afraid of death, you never live. Have you ever wondered why the scriptures tell us to fear God? Isn't that kind of an odd thing? The fear of the Lord. I mean, are you supposed to fear someone you love? Doesn't it seem like almost a, a counterintuitive command to fear the Lord? And that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I started wondering, why is it that fearing God is actually a good thing? Because God is only good. So he would never tell us to do something that wasn't good for us. And then I realized that whatever I fear is actually my master. And... Whatever you fear will hold you captive and will be a cruel master. But when you fear only God, he's your only master. And the Bible says that perfect fear casts that, that perfect love casts out all fear. See, when you only fear God, he captures that fear with his love. And only when you fear God in him only can fear no longer hold you captive. You ever, you ever thought there were like some people with courageous DNA? Like I always thought, you know, like people who are courageous, they were just born different. Because I'm a natural born coward. I, anybody relate to that? Like, I mean, I was always afraid of everything. When I was a kid, 
I was afraid of dogs. I mean, really afraid of dogs. Because when we were in El Salvador as little kids, we were walking down the street, me and my brother and my uncle and my aunt, and I saw this creature coming at me from a distance, and it was terrifying. It was making this sound coming at us. And, and I was paralyzed with fear. And I turned around, and I looked at my uncle Richard, and I said, pick me up. And my uncle picked me up, and I knew I was safe. But then I looked at my brother. And my brother went to my Uncle Richard, and he said, I already have your brother. I can't pick you up. And he went to my Aunt Linda, and she tried to pick him up. She goes, I'm sorry, I can't pick you up. You're too heavy. And I saw the fear in his eyes, and he took off running. But when he ran, he saved us because all the focus went on him. And I didn't know what that creature was called back then, but now I know it was called a basset hound. And, and that horrific-looking dog with those big floppy ears with that deep howl, chased my brother and bit him right in the butt. He never saw it coming, but I saw it. And what's strange is my brother was never afraid of dogs because he had faced the worst the dog could do to him. And he was never afraid of a dog, but I always lived in fear because fear is not rooted in reality. Fear is the dark side of faith. Fear is a negative view of the future. I have a lot of friends who are atheists who tell me, I don't believe in faith. That's so silly. And I say, well, do you believe in fear? They go, oh, yeah. See, faith is a positive projection into the future. Fear is a negative projection into the future. Fear is just the dark side of faith. So if you're going to be affected by fear, why don't you just take on faith? And I was always afraid of dogs. It was terrible. And in fact, as an adult, it was a problem. Because I'd hear a dog barking, I'd jump. Like, it didn't matter. It could be like a chihuahua. It's like, it was like, it's like, you're going to get me, my Achilles. And, and, and I could feel it. I'd see like pit bulls. It would just terrify me. And, and I have this little dog, and she's a coward. And, and, and when I was walking her, a dog came up just barking, and of course, like, I put her in front of me <laughs> to protect me. But she's, like, going between my legs, and I'm like, you're worthless. <laughs> but I, I thought it's okay to put the dog in front of me, but then, like, I remembered when, I, when my, my son was just a little boy, and we were walking, and this dog came out. I just put my son right in front of me, and <laughs> take him! He's my sacrifice. And, uh, and, you know, I realized I got to deal with this fear. Because the only thing that's more powerful than fear is love. And, and there's some of you, you know what it's like to be afraid of dogs. I, I was afraid of uh, roller coasters too. Because I had, I had legitimate reasons to be afraid. Me and my friend, we were in a roller coaster. It's one of those circular ones that goes faster and faster and faster. And, and we got on this thing called, I think it was called the Polar Express. And, and we got in, and it was just choo, choo, choo. And, and as we're going faster and faster and faster, our seatbelt broke. And, and my friend Matt's holding on to the bar, and he's about to be thrown out. And I'm getting pulled into the engine, getting sucked in. And we're going round and round, and the guy goes, do you want to go faster? And we're going, no, 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 no. But he couldn't even see us screaming, no, no, no. 
He was there smoking weed and goes, I want to go faster. He had to be employee of the month. We held on for dear life when that thing finally slowed down. I was terrified I couldn't get on a roller coaster again. And for years, I would go to amusement parks and I said, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. I'm going to go through the the baseball at at Target's, you know, and I'm going to shoot the guns. And yeah, I I don't like those things. And, And then I realized that my freedom was limited because of my fears. And I had to break that through one day. And what's crazy is when I finally got on roller coasters, I realized, oh, they're fun. See, what you don't realize is that your fears are stealing from you your freedom. And on that other side of your fears, there's the freedom of joy and life and love. You're missing what you're longing for because you're so afraid to step into it. Some of you, you, you want in intimacy more than anything in the world, but you fear intimacy more than anything in the world. So you're trapped. Because the things you long for most, you fear the most. See, I, I think that some of you, you have an arrow in your hand and you stopped striking. Because something set into your soul, you became afraid. And, and I think it's funny now because uh, oh, my friends who are, are close to me, they, they think I'm fearless. And, and I look at my life, and I've walked the streets of Damascus, Syria, and I've gone into the middle of Pakistan and, and walked some of those dangerous cities and streets in the world. And I would call my son and say, hey, I'm going through this favela right now. I just want you to know my location in case I disappear. And I, I've walked into middle of projects with Uzi machine guns everywhere and cocaine stacked to the ceilings in the middle of drug cartels. And, and I can tell you, I never felt any fear. And what happened is I decided that I would make fear my friend. When I'm afraid of something, I lean toward it. When I'm afraid of something, when I feel fear taking over, I move in that direction because I assume my freedom is on the other side of that fear. And then two and a half years ago when I was taking these tests, because I kept failing all these physicals, but I couldn't find anything wrong with me. And the doctors couldn't find anything wrong with me. And, and I felt healthy and I felt okay. And, and, and then but I couldn't get insurance. And I, I wanted to get insurance so that our church could be taken care of if I died. And my business could be taken care of if I died. And, and my family could be taken care of if I died. And, and I couldn't get insured. And so I called this doctor friend of mine. And I said, hey, I've never been good at tests. And I keep failing all these tests. And I need a doctor to help me pass these tests the way a lot of like people help like college athletes pass tests. And, 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 and she goes, Erwin, that's illegal. And I said, is that, is that a no? And, uh, and, and, and she goes, but I'll send you to a doctor to help you get through these tests. So I went to a doctor. He was like 100 years old. He was like almost dead. And, uh, but he was sweet. And he, he gave me tests that a man should never have to experience. And, and I, I, my wife and I went to see him so I could get a clean bill of health. And my kids were waiting for me at a restaurant so we could celebrate. I could finally be insured. And he told me I had cancer. And when you hear the words you have cancer, it's like hearing you're going to die. And, and he explained that I had 
cancer and it had somehow been missed. And so it was late stages, stage four, stage five. And five places that they biopsied had cancer and it spread to multiple places in my body and didn't necessarily look good. And that night, I went home, and I, I'd been, I had just finished writing The Last Arrow, but I was now editing the book, and I opened up to around page 104 after my family went to sleep. And I thought to myself, I have maybe three weeks before the surgery, so I need to finish this book because this last arrow might be my last book. And I opened up to this page around 104, and this is the first line I read. It was so strange. I wrote this in the book a year before. And the line said this, I need to tell you before you hear from someone else that I'm dying. I wrote that a year before I knew I had cancer. And I was reading it that night and I thought, how strange. It's almost as if I wrote myself a note a year ago to prepare me for this day. But the next line is the most important line. Right after I wrote, I need to tell you before you hear from someone else that I'm dying, I wrote this. But so are you. I don't know if you know this, but you're dying. And if you did know that, I'm so sorry <laughs> to have to break this news to you. But the moment you took your first breath, you were moving toward your last breath. And the problem isn't that you find out you're dying. The problem is that you never realize that you all were always dying and you never lived because you thought you'd live forever in this world. And you need to save nothing for the next life. You need to live each day as if you know the end is coming. And I know it sounds strange, but through those entire days before I had the surgery, I never experienced fear at all. And, and I, I think it's okay to feel fear. Because fear may, may be your natural reaction to an overwhelming experience. But you see, what happened is I realized something, is that years before when I entrusted my life to Jesus, I put death behind me. See, for most of us, the reason we're so paralyzed is that death is still in front of us. We think death is ahead of us. But if you actually entrust your life to Jesus and you let him end you and give you a new life, see what the scriptures actually say is that we are crucified with Christ. So when you give your life to Jesus and you let him kill you, death is now behind you. Death is in your past. And for me, death was so last year that it had no effect on my future. So what are you afraid of? You're afraid of failure? Get over it. You won't be the first person to ever fail. You will not be the last person. And you probably won't even fail that creatively. Some of you, you just need to overachieve in failure. You need to set the pace in failure. You haven't seen anything yet. I, I love being 60 now. See, I, I love the fact that now nobody can say he's just a rebellious kid. <laughs> now I can risk everything. See, I kept telling my wife, every decade we're going to go a little more crazy. And if I was willing to risk my life when I was 25, when I had so much life ahead of me, what have I got to lose now? 
What are you waiting for to live? See, most of us think we're afraid of death, but actually we're afraid of life. Stop fearing rejection from other people. Stop fearing not being accepted. Stop fearing not being enough. Stop fearing failure. Stop fearing death. Stop fearing all the things that steal from you your life and strike the arrow. But I want you... But in the same way that your freedom is on the other side of your fears, your greatness is on the other side of your pain. See, I, I think we live in like a mythology of greatness. We get to see the best in the world, and it looks so easy. You ever notice that when people do something great, it just looks easy? When Rafael Nadal or Dovacek or Federer plays tennis or Serena, they just make it look so easy. Just hit the ball. It just lands in. It's so easy, right? And when we watch Michael George or Steph Curry play basketball, it just looks so easy. And then we try it. <laughs> Whenever you see someone do something great, it's going to look like it's just a natural outcome of easy. Because you don't see all the discipline and all the hard work behind the greatness. There is no greatness that emerges without pain. If you want to be great, you have to embrace the pain. Because your greatness is on the other side of that pain. So, uh, so they told me I had to have two hours of surgery to get the cancer out of me. Ended up being six and a half hours of surgery. It was more complicated than they thought, more cancer than they thought. And after six and a half hours of surgery around January two years ago, they put me in this hospital room. And it was nine o'clock at night. I had six holes in my stomach where they used a robot named Da Vinci, which I love. <laughs> I am an art form worked on by Da Vinci. <laughs> I had six holes in my stomach and my abdomen through my muscles and the fat. <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes my stomach just growls. And and I woke up at midnight three hours later. And when I woke up, I saw my wife Kim sleeping in the chair. And I woke her up. I said, Kim, honey. She got nervous. What? What? You okay? You okay? I said, I'm okay. I'm okay. I said, I just I just wanted to wake you up because I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna walk. She goes, You're not gonna get up and walk. I said, No, no, I am. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna walk. She just had six and a half hours of surgery. You're not going to get up and walk. And I said, no, I'm getting up, and I'm going to walk. I just wanted you to help me. And she called the nurse because she's a snitch. And, uh, <laughs> and the nurse came, and my wife's like, my husband's trying to get out of bed. Tell him he cannot get out of bed. Tell him he can't walk. And she goes, I'm sorry, sorry, you, you cannot get out of bed. And I said, I'm getting out of bed. And, and she goes, you cannot get out of bed. I said, look, is there anything I could do to damage myself? She goes, well. Technically, no. Then I said, then I'm getting out of bed, and I'm going to walk. And the nurse said, sir, if you're going to get out of that bed and walk, you're going to need some pain medicine. So let me give you some pain medicine before you try that. And I looked at her, and I said, no. This is the entire point. I know that if I can stand in this pain, I can stand in whatever pain is ahead of me. 
And, and I got out of that bed, and when I stood up, I wanted to scream my guts out. I wanted to tell you, and God just showed up, and, and there was like angel dust like floating in the air, and I didn't feel anything. I was like light as a feather. Now, I wanted to say things you're not allowed to say. I, I, and when I stood there, I thought, I don't know if I can do this. And I just took a step, and it hurt. Every single hole in my stomach was screaming, you're an idiot, get back in bed. <laughs> then I took that second step. And I, I'd love to tell you the second step was easy. It wasn't easier, it was harder. And the third step hurt just as much, and the fourth and the fifth. And I came to the end of the bed where I couldn't lean, hold onto the bed, and I had to walk and put all the weight of my body on those holes. And, and my wife said, are you, are, you, are you going to the bathroom? I said, no, because I had a catheter. And if you don't know what a catheter is, it's a medical device for male humiliation. <laughs> and uh, and I, I took a hard right and I walked out that hospital room and started walking down the hall. And with every step, I don't know if the pain became less. I just became more. And I learned how to stand in that pain. And I finally worked my way back to the room and I got back in bed. And then three hours later, I got myself up again and walked out of that room to that hospital. And then at eight in the morning when my wife went to get coffee and the nurses were changing their um, uh, shifts, I snuck up, I went and took a shower. I got myself dressed and when they came back, I said, I'm ready to go home. And they said, you cannot leave. You have to at least eat one meal here. And I said, no, that would be more pain than I could bear. <laughs> and, uh, and I went home that day and, and they told me it would take months and months of recovery and all that sort of thing. And, and my, we, we live in a two-story house and the second, my wife had turned our bedroom into like a, a panic room. She had put a refrigerator up there so that I would never have to leave. I could eat right there. And, and she bought one of those electric chairs where you, it lays you down, and then it, it sits you up, and then it stands you up. So I would never have to use a muscle again the rest of my life. And, and, and we had a TV, and, and she was just going to take care of me. She was going to take care of me. And I, and, and I said, honey, well, what are you doing? She goes, you can't leave. You have to be here. we got to get you better. You know, you almost died. And... and and, and I, the first week, I just, I would have to wait for her to disappear so I could leave the room. And, uh, and I live in Hollywood, and the first week I, I, I left the house walking with my catheter down the street. Because everyone in Hollywood's crazy, so why shouldn't I be? And, uh, and, I even went to an open house to go look at and second week, I called my surgeon, and I said, I need to get this catheter out of my body because it needs to be there for a month. I said, no, I think a week is good. And, uh, and I convinced him to take it out, and it, that was painful. I won't even go into that. And, uh, and I asked the surgeon that second week, I said, what's the fastest a person has ever had this surgery and then played basketball? He said, well, there really is no record for that. And I said, okay, what you're saying is that it's mine. 
So three weeks after six and a half hours of surgery, with six holes glued together, I put my stuff in a sports bag and I dropped it down the stairs so my wife wouldn't see it. And uh, I'm not afraid of her. <laughs> but she is a boundary. <laughs> and, and, and she was in the back office and I went to her and said, honey, um, I'm getting, I'm getting like claustrophobic. I got to get out of the house. She says, what do, you, what, do, what do you mean get out of the house? And I said, I'm, I'm going to get out of the house. I'm, I'm gonna, I called some of the guys. We're just going to get together. And, and do what? She goes, you know, just do guy. You, you know, we're, <laughs> we're just going to hang out and be guys together. And, and she said, uh, don't do anything stupid, <laughs> which is such a waste of words, right? You know? and, <laughs> I had rented a basketball gym, and they all met me at that basketball gym. And three weeks after having that surgery, I was playing basketball. Now, the downside is the holes were bleeding. <laughs> but the upside is my threes were dropping. And uh, so I knew that God was with me. And, and, and let me tell you. My kids came up to me and goes, Dad, why are you pushing yourself so hard? And I told them, I said, because I have all these friends who are atheists and all these friends who are agnostics, and I'm the only proof of God they have. And if I can show them that there is no fear that can steal your freedom and no pain that can rob from you your greatness, Maybe it will open their eyes to see what God could do with them. I'm not pro-pain. I'm anti-pain. I'm not pro-suffering. I'm anti-suffering. See, when people say, oh, you just, you just need to suffer, like, don't seek suffering. Sufferings will seek you. <laughs> don't, 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 don't be a masochist and search for pain. Pain will find you. Just don't be afraid of suffering. And don't be afraid of pain. So they go, well, you know, Jesus suffered. Yes, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't go to the cross and say, oh, this is what I've always wanted. He endured the cross because he could see through the other side. If you could get a glimpse of the greatness inside of you, you would have the strength to endure the pain you have to face. And you can take more than you know. I mean, I always just harassing all my young guys. They get injured, they go down, they're out for like five years. It's just, a, it's just a broken leg, dude. Just get up. It's not even a compound fracture, right? You underestimate how strong you are. You underestimate how much pain you can endure. You underestimate how you can stand in suffering and still see joy. And I do not want you to miss out on the freedom that God has for you and the greatness that God placed in you just because it's hard.
So take the arrow and strike it. Take it in your hand. And strike and strike. And realize that your freedom is on the other side of your fears and your greatness is on the other side of your pain, but also that your future is on the other side of your failures. The future God has for you is not a future you can get to without failure. It's not a future you can get to without messing up and blowing it and falling short and being disappointed. It's all a part of your story. But isn't that how great stories are written? When you're facing a life bigger than you, a challenge bigger than you, of course God's going to call you to a life that's bigger than you. It's the only way your life can be big enough for him. Here we come. <laughs> Do you hear the rumblings? It's your future waiting for you. You didn't fail, you quit. You stopped striking the arrow. You thought it was gonna be easier. I, I see this all the time in LA. People come to LA and they feel like they have a destiny. But if they believe in Jesus, they feel they have a calling. And then life gets hard. It's amazing how God hangs up the phone where they stop hearing the call. If God has called you into it, it will not be easy. If what you're choosing is easy for you, it's not God's calling on your life. If what you've chosen doesn't require sacrifice from your life, it's not God's calling on your life. And the crazy thing about it though, when you step into your calling, when you step into your destiny, when you step into your freedom and into your greatness and you start moving toward your future, even when it's hard, you are filled with joy. When it doesn't come easy, something inside of you just rises up and says, this is what I was born to do. Some of you, you think that failure is the dead end. It's not. Failure is just the rubble that God uses to, to build the bridge to get you over the great divide. Your future is waiting for you. And I look back and I realize so much of my life has been one failure after another failure after another failure. You know, years ago, I, I, I was uh, in the fashion industry and I had several fashion companies and a film company and a tech company and and we had this multi-million dollar company that was doing really, really well. And I woke up one day and my partner had taken everything. I woke up one day and I watched maybe $6 million disappear like that. I woke up one day and realized that all these lawyers were telling me that they were taking all the money, but they were not finishing any of the projects. And every project was in my name, so I had to take a million dollar loan so that I could finish every single project that they left undone. And I had to fly home to tell my wife, who was an orphan, that I'd lost everything. 
And one of my goals in life, when I married my wife, Kim, who grew up as a foster child, who had never had her own home, never had her own clothes, who only knew poverty. I, I never wanted her to have to experience that again. And I had to fly home and tell my wife I lost everything. And I remember sitting down in this little coffee shop, getting a cup of coffee with her. And I said, honey, this is what happened. And I said, I lost everything. And she looked at me without hesitating. And she said, I thought I was your everything. says that? I, is she Jane Austen? I mean, who, like, who says that? And, and she goes, I thought I was your everything, and I, I didn't have a good response. I just looked at her, and I said, you, you are, but, I, but I, I, I lost my other everything that finances my everything, and, uh, and she said, we've been poor before. And poverty never stopped us. See, I, I, want, I want to tell you this. I'm standing here today not because I am a story of success after success after success. I'm standing here because I'm a story of failure after failure after failure. And I've discovered nothing can stop me. But you have to decide for yourself. You have to decide what your story will be. This king, he took the arrow, and he only struck it three times. And we might say, yeah, but God should have been more clear. God should have been more specific. God should have told him to keep striking. When God puts something in your hand, you don't have permission to quit. When God trusts you with something, and he says, strike the arrow, you strike and strike. And strike, and strike, and strike, and strike. When everyone else has you crazy, you just go, I am crazy, and you strike again. When everyone else says you're a fool, you say, I am a fool, and you strike again. When everyone else says it's impossible, you say it is impossible, and you strike, 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 and you strike. Because when you die, when you die, those arrows will not do you any good. So when you take your last breath, take that last tail and strike it one last time. So that when you come to the end of your life, you can hear him say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's somebody here, and um, you've never crossed the line of faith. You've never opened up your life to Jesus. You've thought about it. Or maybe even you grew up in church, and your parents are spiritual or religious. They may be Christians, but it just hasn't been for you. But tonight... Tonight you know that what you need is Jesus. 
Because maybe you don't have the strength to pull that bow back and shoot that arrow. And just like Elisha put his hands on the king's hands and pulled it and gave him the strength he needed, Jesus wants to be the strength you need. So if you're here right now and, and you're ready to trust Jesus with your life, I just want you to do something really simple. I want to lead you in a one-sentence prayer. It's not everything you and God need to talk about. That, that's, that conversation is going to last forever. But right now, I want to lead you in just a one-sentence prayer where you can give your life to Jesus and he can put his life inside of you. This is the prayer right now. Jesus, I give you my life. That's it. If you're here and this is your longing, just tell him right now, Jesus, I give you my life. It's not complicated. It's, it's actually not easy. It's easy for us, but it wasn't easy for God. It's simple because Jesus paid the price for you through his death on the cross. And he rose from the dead with one intention towards you, and that was to love you, to forgive you. So right now, would you just tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. If this is your prayer right now, if this is the moment you're crossing the line of faith and you're giving your life to Jesus, I want you right now just to find the courage just to raise your hand right now. I just want to see you because I want to pray specifically for you. If this is you right now, I just want you to raise your hand right now and say yes. This is my prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Father, I thank you that you meet us where we are and take us where we could never imagine we could have gone. I thank you, Jesus, that you see each person here, that you love them, that you know the way to their freedom, you know the path to their greatness. You know the journey to their future. And not fear, not pain, not failure can keep them from the calling that you have placed on their life. And God, for everyone who's just crossed the line of faith for the first time, I pray you just wrap them up in your love and just let them know they belong to you. And God, I know there's a lot of people here who maybe they, they, they thought they failed, but they just quit. They, they thought that you let them down, but they just gave up. You've been waiting to pick up the story of their life, waiting for them to pick up their arrow and start striking again. And I pray, God, that in this room, there'd be young men and women who would strike the arrow into their very last breath, that they would not go down without a fight, but they would live their lives fully, completely, fearlessly. We thank you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can we just thank God for what he's doing in this place tonight? God bless you guys. And that's the end of this week's podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Email us at connect at chc.org.sg 